for the last couple of years, we have taken a bit of time in November to, to recognize um, orphans and foster care and adoption in our services uh, during the month of November. Early, uh, oftentimes, churches will celebrate or take a moment to focus on Orphan Sunday in early November. And so I want to invite my friends Seth and Meg Napper to come up here because one of the other things we like to do is on Communion Sundays, we like to have testimonies of how we have seen God work and seen God's grace and seen God's provision in our lives. And Seth and Meg have a story like that. Um, and so we're going, to, we're going to do that right now. Um, Orphan Sunday uh, focuses upon the work of adoption, foster care, and caring for orphans and those who care for orphans. Orphans, as we all know, are close to Jesus' heart. In fact, James defines pure religion in part by caring for orphans and widows and their distress. And so I'm thankful to be a part of a church family where there's so many lives involved with people who are going through the struggle, whether it's adoption, whether it's kids who are in a foster care system, or the list kind of goes on and on. I'm so grateful for many of you out here who have sought to be the hands and the feet of Jesus in our community and in our world. And so thank you for that. Um, and so we want to talk to Seth and Meg. Hey, how's it going? Awesome. So first off, if you don't know Seth and Meg, this was an additional question I forgot to ask you. How long have you guys been here? I can't even remember how long you've been a part of the family at first. A long time. Um, like right after we're married, so probably since like 2004 Okay. somewhere around there. That's awesome. So if you've been around since 2004, you may have seen their faces at some point. Um, Tell us, what led you to adopt? You know, what, what has been part of that journey that God has had you on? So adoption isn't something that you just wake up one day and say, oh, I'm going to adopt. Um, there's a lot of thought goes, that goes into it. But um, for Seth and I, it was something that we just felt called to for a very long time. It was something that we knew um, that we were going to do even before we got married. And adoption always looked... Um, it was in our future, and we just kind of had to figure out the timing of that for us. So we got married, and then we had Annabelle, and we had Taylin, and we just didn't feel like we were on the same page of when we should actually start the whole process. So, Yeah, so um, after Annabelle and Taylin were born, we uh, stepped through quite a big challenge in our family. Um, Meg um, was diagnosed with cancer, and we stepped through that for a year, a year and a half. And when she was well and God took us through that journey, we figured it was time to take a different journey. So in 2011, that's when we started our international adoption process. Wow. What, what, there's multiple journeys there. We'll stay focused on one. Um, what were some of the difficult things that you experienced throughout the adoption process for you and, and for your family? Yeah. Um, adoption's never early, and I want to put a little disclaimer out there first. Um, our process took four and a half years, and I don't want to scare people away just because of that number, but that's what happened in our process, so we're going to be talking about some of the difficulties that we went through. We have friends that did adoption, and it takes sometimes a year, but that wasn't what it looked like for us, so um, every case is unique, so just keep that in mind. Um, so for international adoption, there's a lot of steps that you have to go through, and um, one of the first steps that you have to do is you have to choose where you want to adopt from. And sometimes that's limited um, based on the agency that you work with and where they have license and what countries and everything like that. Um, for us, we started our process in Ghana, Africa, and um, we started all of the paperwork and you start your home studies and all that stuff. And then 
One of the first major things that were kind of like, whoa, um, we had to sit down with our caseworker and you basically get to decide what kind of child you want. And that's just a very unnatural uh, foreign feeling. You get to decide if you want a boy, do you want a girl, do you want a baby, a toddler, an older kid. And you're just kind of like, well, when I was pregnant, I didn't get those choices. <laughs> you just kind of have your child. But then it goes even one step further and um, they walk you through every possibility of, um, can you take a child into your family that's blind or that has hearing loss or a heart condition or correctable disabilities or major disabilities? And you basically have to sit there and say yes or no to each one of those questions. And for me, it just struck me as a little bit more of an emotional process because I wasn't, they don't tell you that's gonna happen. And then you're in a position saying, well, if we don't say yes to this, what family is? And then if no one says yes to this, what's gonna to happen to that child? So that was kind of the first emotional part where we kind of felt like this is, this is a big deal. Um, so we continued on with our process and we were about a year into the Ghana program and God shut that door for us. Um, just one day, Ghana decided that they were gonna suspend all international adoptions indefinitely and they still stand that way today. And that was kind of a major turning point and understanding for us as far as international adoption and um, just kind of what a crazy journey it is and how unpredictable adoption is when you're working with governments from other countries. And um, for us, it was very hard to go through that process because we felt like we lost a child. Um, we lost a child that we never met. We lost a child that we'd never even seen a picture of that child. And as parents, you kind of go through this grieving process, but then your mind starts playing tricks on you because you're mourning something that never actually happened. And so we were kind of in this just space of what do we do and how do we process that, so. Yeah, so we got to that stage where Ghana wasn't gonna happen and we just kind of tried to figure out what to do next and struggled with it, did lots of prayer, um, tried to figure out just what to do next. We didn't want to quit, but we just didn't really know what the next steps were. Um, we did end up talking to our caseworker, and we did end up transferring to the Ethiopia program. So this is a year into our process. We were told nine to 12 more months, so we figured, okay, just another year, and we'll get this done, and we'll step through it um, without taking the whole morning. Two years later, that nine to 12 months didn't happen. Um, we started on a list, a referral list in the 50s, so there were 50 families ahead of us. And two years later, through ups and downs and people dropping out of the program and challenges, we were in the top five and getting close. And then we found out that things were on the edge of not happening. So we were, again, concerned that it would shut down and we thought this can't happen after it already happened once. But we thought Ethiopia was going to be another Ghana experience. Um, kept praying, kept staying in it. The kids did an amazing job. Obviously, they're like, when is this going to happen? Um, and in July of 15 is when we got a referral, so almost four years after when we started our process. Yeah, and it was just kind of tricky to walk through that because you see all the things that are happening to families before you and the struggles that they're going through. and how the process is just like almost coming to a complete stop and um, you get tired of answering people's questions about how's the process going because everything that we had told people prior to this point was basically wrong. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's painful because people wanna know what's happening, 
but you don't know what's happening, so how do you answer your family, your friends, your community, and um, people that you know that are walking this journey with you? But um, So in 2015, we finally got a referral of Ezekiel, and then um, you kind of go through the mountain work of the second dose of paperwork and everything that you need to get ready to travel to that country. Are we still there? There we go. Um, we started going through all that, and typically it was another six to eight months before you travel to the country. And um, during that time and all the paperwork that we were doing with that, it wasn't going at the normal rate. Um, we were hitting every roadblock, um, everything was being delayed, and there was really no answer why things were happening the way that they were happening. It was, we're walking through some stuff that our agency never saw happen, and we were kind of just on eggshells for the next year about is this actually gonna happen and being scared of the next phone call from our agency about what sort of news. Um, just to kind of give you a perspective, there's different court cases that go on and sometimes in Ethiopia those would get canceled once or twice, but no big deal. But we had, it was like four or five that were canceled within a three month period. And again, there's no explanation, um, pardon me, uh, no explanation about why those things were happening, and um, we needed another signature, like a kind of an approval to travel, and we come to find out it was a two-person signature, and one person signed it, and they put it on the desk of the other person who decided to take a vacation, so then we had to wait almost another two weeks before we got the okay to travel, and then, so we thought we were okay. Um, we were supposed to travel out on an April 1, and we had our final court days, scheduled for, I think it was April 5th, where we were gonna gain custody of Ezekiel. And the day before we were supposed to leave, um, our caseworker called us. And in the back of my head, I was hoping that it was just a, okay, are you guys set to go? Everything's set, and it wasn't. Um, she basically told us the organization in Ethiopia that controls adoption was closing down for a month, and they weren't gonna process any adoptions, which meant we couldn't get our final signature to bring him out of Ethiopia. So um, you go into a tailspin at that point. We were supposed to be leaving to meet our son and bring him home, and we were told no. <laughs> and after all the other no's that we um, had up to this time, we were crumbling. <laughs> and I want to thank the church at this time because I think many people knew at this point a little bit more about what was going on in our um, situation. We thank you for the prayers um, that went up during that time and uh, we basically we still traveled to Ethiopia we still met Ezekiel we still became his legal parents but we couldn't get the signature that we needed to take him out of the country so we had to leave him in Ethiopia come back to the States for a couple of weeks and then we traveled back and then we finally completed the process <laughs> can you can you kind of feel for them here <laughs> in all the ways in which you think something is going to happen and then it changes and changes. It'd be really easy to see a lot of uh, darkness and a lot of struggle and all that through that. But through all that, how did you see God work and how did you experience spiritual blessing and physical blessing through, through this? So that list is long too, but I'll try to keep it to a few. Um, so the first thing was just the biggest blessing is Ezekiel. He's such a great little boy. He's kind, he's loving, he's smart. He's perfect for our family. It's just been great having him home. Um, but a lot of things along the way were blessings. Um, frankly, with all the difficulties we went through, the biggest blessing was having each other to go through it with. 
I can only imagine trying to step through this as a single person, but um, that was a huge blessing, and it grew our faith, as these situations typically do. Um, so that was huge for us. And then um, Annabelle and Taylor, and they probably don't want me talking about them, but they, they were huge blessings through this, too, just how they grew. Um, I mean, when you tell, at the time, a two- and four-year-old that within a year they're going to have a brother or sister, and then four or five years later it's... It's happening. Um, they've, they've grown a lot in this as well. Um, and then I just wanted to talk about the Ethiopian people. So um, those trips changed my life, and that was a huge blessing too. When you travel there, you get to see people that don't have what we have, but yet their love and their um, passion for life is just on a different level often than what mine and what ours are. Um, you got to see... It's hard to explain, but you got to see just this love that people have for family. And then um, you got to see what hard work really looks like. I have lots of stories of people doing things that are crazy or things they had to do to survive. But, um, and then the biggest blessing was you heard this four-and-a-half-year journey. Um, God had a plan, so it took us four-and-a-half years from when we started to when we finished. And Ezekiel was exactly four and a half years old when we got him. So there was this stuff going on behind the scenes that God was working out. So we thought it should take two years. He knew it should take four and a half years. So when, when you don't think there's a plan, there's definitely a plan, and God has a plan for you. That'll, that'll preach right there uh, to each one of us, I think. One of the reasons we do this is not only to hear your story, but also to help us know how we as a church can support adoption, adoptive families, the, the, the list runs kind of fairly broad there. What are maybe some of the biggest things that we can do as a church, wh- whether we're adopting or whether not, um, what are some of the biggest things we can do to support people and, and, um, and adoption and adoptive families? Um, I'm just gonna take a step back from adoption just for a second, if yeah. that's okay. Um, We have to look at a bigger picture sometimes of just adoption, and we have to be talking about family preservation and what that looks like here and in other countries. Um, Family preservation is just sometimes assisting families um, in various ways, but sometimes people just need a step up to keep their family together. And if we can be those people that will step in the gap and give people support so adoption doesn't even have to happen, that should be the first thing that we're looking at. So um, beyond that, I mean, there is a place for foster care and there is a place for adoption. But um, that those things happen because the family's disrupted. And that's not God's original intent when you're looking at a family. So what I want people to understand is when a di- disruption happens to a child, um, that causes trauma. And some kids live through a whole lot of trauma. and. That isn't something that just goes away because they move to a secure environment. Um, these kids are dealing with that trauma for their entire lifetime. And as adoptive parents and foster parents, sometimes we have to parent our children a little bit differently because of what they've experienced in their life. And sometimes that might look a little different to other families around us, and we're okay with that because we have to just meet our kids um, at the level and emotional space where they are and sometimes that gets really really hard and I think one way that churches and communities can be supportive of adoptive and foster families is obviously prayer 
but I think letting the families involved know that you're praying for them can make a world of difference. If somebody will come up to you and say, hey, you know what, I'm just gonna pray for your family this afternoon, that can be a load lifted off of our shoulders because some afternoons don't look pretty. <laughs> and there's a lot that um, families deal with, but also siblings of adoptive and foster children too. But um, also, if you're so brave and you feel like you could be offering some babysitting or some time away, um, those are things that can also just let families take that breath that sometimes you need to take. Um, but also with that, that kind of goes two ways because um, Often foster families and adoptive families just can't step away. Um, even though you offer it, it might be another six weeks or six months before we can take you up on that offer. There's so much um, bonding and attachment and just um, kind of normalization that has to happen um, when a child enters a new family that it's sometimes hard to get those breaks that we need. But knowing that people are around us and supporting us and willing to step in when we're ready to take a step back I think, um, again, just takes that load off a little bit. That's awesome. I, I love how you, how you zoomed it back because even how we treat one another and how we build up one another, as the scripture talks about, that can have a lasting impact upon people's lives and especially the lives of families from, from hopefully being disrupted. So husbands, love your wives. Uh, wives, love your husbands. Care for your kids. Um, be in the word. Love the Lord together today. Um, some applications there for us all. Um, thank you, thank you, thank you for sharing your story. Uh, we want to encourage you, as Seth and Meg said, we want to encourage you to be prayerful. That's something that each of us can easily engage with in praying for families whom you know that, that are adoptive families or foster care families or, or just for people in general who are, who are struggling through life like this. Um, be absorbative of all the folks you come into uh, contact with. We don't always know the story behind someone. Always seek to find the story and then love them with the love of Christ. Um, we're going to pray here in just a moment, but there's a table out in the narthex. If you go out the doors, you go down the hallway a little bit to your left, right next to the child check-in station, there, there's a table. And after our service and, and after Sunday school today, there's going to be people there who are part of our, our, our adoption and foster care uh, ministry. And so you can find out more about some of the things that they do to support one another in ways that you could be involved more uh, intentionally and more prayerfully in the lives of folks who, who are going through some of this stuff. So let's pray. God, we thank you that we are your adopted sons and your daughters through the work of Jesus on the cross, death, burial, and resurrection. God, we thank you for the relationship that we have with you and how we can have a part in encouraging others in their walks of faith, uh, particularly those who walk through this struggle. God, give us sensitivity. Give us um, a prayerfulness to our lives to know how to speak uh, hope and to speak grace and to speak truth into what can be very uh, difficult moments. God, give us a great passion to love our families well that we might seek to build up families to love you with all their heart, their soul, their mind, and their strength. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.
Good morning. <clears throat> hey, that was good. I didn't steal it. I can't steal one of those. Never mind. All righty. Well, I love hearing that story, and I love how uh, how we can partner. <clears throat> excuse me, partner with one another uh, in in that journey. Uh, my name is Cameron, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I'm I'm excited about where we're going in the Word today. But first, kiddos, do you have your notes with you? Can I see them? Perfect. Love it. Love it. All right. So the words today are world and passport. World and passport. Starting starting now. So world, world, world. Passport, passport, passport. World, world, passport. I'm, I'm not going to do that the whole time. But those count. So I'll be checking those. Uh, another thing you should have gotten on the way in uh, is a passport. And I'm very thankful for, for Sandy Eating, who, who did a lot of cool work putting this together and what we're looking at this morning is this idea of the stamp of your, your, the stamp of faith, the stamp of citizenship uh, in heaven. We're continuing our study in Philippians, and we're going to be in chapter three today, chapter three, verses eighteen through twenty-one. Uh, and Pastor Bill last week kind of shared with us how Paul, throughout this letter, uh, is just it's it's covered with this idea of grace, covered with this idea that we, we live in the grace and in the power of what God is, is doing with us, doing in us. And this morning, we're going to look at a section of Scripture that I really think speaks to uh, and shows a little bit of the heart of Paul. Now, if you don't know who Paul is, he's, he's arguably one of the most influential missionaries uh, of the Christian faith. Uh, wrote many of the books in the New Testament uh, and speaks a lot about what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus, what it looks like to, to give up everything for the sake of, of Christ, the sake of knowing Christ. A little bit earlier in chapter 3, he says, all those things that I thought were, were, were amazing, the thing that I, I kind of placed my identity on, actually are, are, are nothing, are rubbish, are trash in comparison to knowing, knowing Christ. And so we're going to be looking at some scripture this morning that kind of solidifies that. What does it mean to, to be a citizen of heaven? Because as believers, that's what we are. Now, how many of you actually have, not your, not your cool, fancy passport here, but how many actually have a passport at home? Yeah? Travel other country a little bit? Um, now, here's another question. How many of you, without thinking about it, know exactly where it is? Actually, that's a lot more hands than I thought. Uh, so for me, uh, what, my passport is something, and every time I travel, I don't really think, I don't think much of it at home. It maybe sits in a drawer. I think I know where it is at home, now that I think about it. Uh, it sits in a drawer. I don't really pay attention to it much. I don't look at it. I don't, I don't see the, the value in it as much sitting at home in, in Zeeland, Michigan. But if you've ever, oh, we good? All right. If, if, you've ever, uh, if you've ever traveled abroad, if you've ever been on a mission trip, wow. Do I need to switch mics? We good? Cool. Uh, if you've ever traveled abroad and uh, you, you've ever been on a mission trip, I think back when I was, when I was a kid uh, in, in student ministry, and I remember my youth leader saying, don't lose your passport. Your passport is so important. Now check it every 30 seconds, and you're on the plane, and, and you're holding on to it. It's like it's, like it's dear life. I'm like, I cannot lose this passport. And you're traveling. They even have those like fancy like 
secret compartments that you put like under four layers of clothing so nobody can take your passport on your trip. Because if you're out, uh, if you're in another country, that, that passport is almost your lifeline. That passport kind of gets you where you're supposed to go, lets you, allows you into the country, allows you back, back home. And we have this value that we place on it uh, when, when we're abroad. And so I started thinking about that. And I started thinking about what would that look like if we, if we thought about it, if we approached our citizenship uh, in heaven as believers with the same intensity, with the same importance, that same, like, I'm not letting this thing out of my sight. Because we all claim things about ourselves. We could claim our, our political party. We can claim a, uh, an allegiance to a team. You could be a Lions fan, even though the Falcons are better. Uh, you could be a vegetarian. You could be a Chick-fil-A fan. Or whatever it might be, we claim things about ourselves. And those things that we claim about ourselves can oftentimes dictate how we live our lives. They dictate the choices that we make. They dictate the people that we might interact with, people we spend time with. What we do with our money, what we do with our families. And so I want to ask this question this morning. What if we claimed most about, what if the thing that we claim most about ourselves was that we were citizens of heaven? What if what we claim most about ourselves was the fact that we were followers of Jesus, saved by grace? And that is this idea of the stamp of citizenship this morning. The points that I, I want us to walk away from, they're actually in your fancy passport as well, is that we're called to trust, to hope, and to serve. We're, as believers, we're called to trust in God's promises and his faithfulness, even when what we see around us, the experiences that we might be going through, don't make sense. We're called to live in the hope of Christ's return, live in the hope of what we're doing and what God is doing in our lives. And lastly, we're called to be citizens and servants of heaven to reach those with the love of God. So let's dive into scripture together. So Ephesians, I'm sorry, Philippians, chapter 3, verses 18 through 21. For many of whom I've often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. I think this is where we begin to see a little bit of Paul's heart, what he's burdened for, what he's passionate about, and we'll touch on in just a minute. But I also think that Paul is reminding his listeners, because we often need reminders. How many of you have got to be told several times to, to, like, to get it, to, to do something? Ever, like, ever have to be told a couple times, kiddos? Has your parents ever told you like four or five times to do the same thing? I, it happens to me. But I think Paul here is not just saying it because, one, we need reminders, but two, we live in a, in a culture, we live in a society that often the, the truth that we know is not reflected in it. The things that we experience, maybe what we watch on TV, the things that we see in the newspaper, you're like, man, this is, just, this is not the truth that I know. It says that, that people live as enemies of the cross. What does that mean? It means to reject God with your life. That there are earthly things that we can focus on, and there are heavenly things that we can focus on. And those who live as enemies of the cross live in that world of, I'm, I'm, I'm all about me, right? Whatever's true for me is true. Uh, I'm going I'm to do whatever I can to get instantly the, you know, the instant gratification to, to live in our 
flesh. And we see Paul's heart because he says, he says, I say them in tears. His heart breaks for those who live and oppose to the gospel. I love this quote by John Piper. It says, it is a huge sadness when God shows his love for people and in return they despise it. That is what God did on the cross. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us on that cross. To hate the cross is to hate the demonstration of the love of God because the cross is the greatest display of God's love that ever was or ever will be. Think about that for a moment. We live, like I said, we live in a culture where truth is relative, right? We live in a culture that says you can do whatever you want, you can can be whatever you want. Uh, Truth almost doesn't matter. But we know, as Scripture teaches us, there is a truth. And as believers, we're called to trust in those promises, trust in the faithfulness of God, instead of what we see in our current experiences in our current situations. It continues in the verse, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We wait. That's, a, that's, a, that's one of my favorite things to do, right? We, we love waiting, love standing in line. We, we love just knowing that what we get is just, we're just waiting for it. But I think Paul recognizes the struggle recognizes that, yes, there, there are things that we see around us. There's, there's things that we experience. There's, there's uh, people that want to influence, influence us in what we're doing. But we know that the truth that we know cannot be shaken. And we tr- the truth that we know that our citizenship, our home, is in heaven. And I think what Paul is touching on is that there's a sense of patience not that instant gratification, a sense of waiting, meaning that the work that God is doing in our lives, the things that God is doing in us take time. We don't see them right away all the time. A sense of long-suffering. Scripture says, uh, in this world, uh, they will hate you because of me, Jesus told his disciples. There's a sense of hope. And it's not the hope where kiddos might be like, man, I hope I get this for Christmas. That's a wish. I wish I get this. But the the good definition of hope, a biblical hope, is a joyful expectation that God is going to do what he says he is going to do. And that changes how we live in that hope. It changes from, man, I wish God would just do what he says he's going to do. I kind of, I don't know, maybe maybe he won't. To, I know that God is going to do what he says he's going to do. I know that he is who he says he is. And even when we experience different things in life and we experience hardship and we experience things in our culture and our society that just don't make sense and don't live up to the truth that we know, we can live in that hope. Great, uh, you probably heard a saying before that says, in this world, Christians are, are aliens, right? Fully involved in it, yet not of it. We are in it, but not of it. And in John chapter 17, Jesus is talking and praying uh, for his disciples. He says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Just Just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. 
And I think that's a, that's a pretty amazing point. That I think there's oftentimes we live in this, like, man, well, culture's wrong, society's wrong, and I'm going to do everything I can just to stay away from it. It's over there, I'm over here, I got my bubble, and I'm not going, I'm not touching that, right? If that was the case, Jesus would be like, hey, take him, let's go. We, we got who we came for, let's go. But Jesus didn't say that. He said, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. I'm asking you to protect them and be with them when they are in it. We're not called to isolate ourselves. In fact, it's, it's, it's just the opposite. We're called to be citizens and servants of heaven to reach those with the love of God. You think about the Great Commission. You think about go and make disciples of all nations. Go and teach them and baptize them. Engage with them. Because we live in a world that is broken. We live in a world that almost puts on a pedestal a, a, an, opposite, an op- opposition towards the truth that we know in Scripture. And I think this is where Paul's heart comes back into play. What do you do when you look at the world? Do you just get mad and say, man, I never want to be that. I'm, I'm staying away from that. Or like, like Paul's heart that we see, does your heart break? Does your heart look at those people and say, man, that is, that is somebody who, who Jesus died for, and, and they just don't see it yet. They don't, they don't understand how much God loves them, how much he cared for them so much that he sent to son, his son to die on the cross for us. You know, I don't know where all of, all of you are in, in your faith, and whether maybe you're still searching, maybe you're like, man, I'm... I'm full on. I'm, I'm a citizen of heaven. I, I, I try to live my life that way. But if, you, if you're not a follower of Jesus, there is a God who loves you more than you could possibly imagine, who desires to meet you exactly where you are in the depths of, your, of, your, of the brokenness or the, or the doubts of whatever might you be struggling with, desires to meet you there and says, even here, I love you and I care about you. Does your life reflect that type of citizenship? Does your faith, that stamp of citizenship, do you approach it as trusting God's faithfulness, trusting his promises, even when it doesn't necessarily make sense in what you see around you? Do you live in the hope of Christ's return, the hope of God's completing work in us? Or do we live in a bubble? saying, I'm just, I'm just going to have my Bible, and I'm going I'm to do whatever I can to, to avoid all of this other stuff. As one commentator says, Paul's challenge in, in, this, in this scripture will not allow his readers the possibility of serving two masters. Either their God is their stomach, or they will consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Either... They will pursue earthly things, or they will pursue the heavenward call, call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul is pretty clear that there's no middle ground. There's no saying, well, I'm just going to fall somewhere on the spectrum where I'm going to try to maybe let my, my good things outweigh my bad things, or I'm just going to kind of, you know, do enough to where I can say that, yeah, I'm a, I'm a good Christian. Paul's saying no. You're either living for yourself or you're all in. 
your all-in, your citizenship, who you are, what you claim about yourself, the way that that citizenship and things that you claim dictate your life. It's either about yourself that leads to destruction or it's about what God is doing in our lives. It continues in, in Scripture. It says, <clears throat> But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. That's that hope we're talking about. It doesn't say who might just maybe or if you're good enough or if you've checked off all your boxes or if you've made sure to go to ch you know, church most of the time or, or memorize the scripture. No, it says who will transform our lowly body, who will complete the work that he started. If you've placed your faith in Christ, if you're a believer, that's a promise. That's a promise of, of, of continued love and grace in your life. And we're called to live in that hope. One of the things that, that Pastor Clint says a lot, whether that be in our devotions at church or, or from, from the pulpit, says as believers, we've been uh, removed from the punishment of sin. And we live in the hope, that true, that joyful expectation that we know that God is who he says he is and is going to do what he says he's going to do. We live in that hope that one day we'll be removed from the presence of sin. So the things that you see, the, the, the things that don't make sense, the struggles of, uh, of temptations of living uh, and just along in the same ways that society is living. And uh, man, it'd just be so much easier if I, if I just lived this way or if I thought this way or if I, if I accepted this and didn't accept this. We live in the hope that we know that God's promises are true, that he is faithful. And we, we live in the hope that God's work in us will be complete. That fancy word, that sanctification, the process of him making, him, making us more like his son will happen. And I love this idea, this, this stamp of citizenship, of trusting and hoping and serving because we know the end result. We know that the victory is won. And I love that it falls on a communion Sunday. Because much like that time when he was sitting around with his disciples, walking him through what it meant to take communion, to take the, the bread and the blood and the, and, and the wine, uh, it's a reminder. And I love that it falls on a communion Sunday because even when it's difficult to see God at work in our lives, God at work in our world, which we know he is. We come together as a body of believers to celebrate that, to remember what he is doing and what he has done. So as our, as our, our team comes up here, as we kind of transition to communion, I want us to remember these truths. I want us to remember that as, as a stamp of citizenship, as, as one who has placed their faith in Christ, you can trust. We are called to trust, but you can do it because we know it's true. To trust in God's promises and his faithfulness. Of what we, trust in, in him instead of what we see. We're called to live in the hope of Christ's return and God's complete work in us. And lastly, we're called to be citizens and servants of heaven to reach those who Jesus died for.
Does your life reflect that? Does your heart, is your heart burdened for those? Are you willing to pop that bubble and say, I want to reach those for Christ? I want to reach those who Jesus died for. Because that's what we're about here this morning. So let's remember what God is doing through communion. Let's remember that he is faithful. That his love surpasses anything that we could possibly know. That all those things that we might claim about ourselves are truly worthless in comparison to knowing what God is doing in our lives and what he has done. Let's pray together. God, we thank you. We thank you that you are at work. That even in the midst of this, of the world that we live in, you are at work. That you love us more than you could possibly imagine and that we can lean in on that trust. Um, knowing that we are not left alone. God, I pray you would give, hearts, give us hearts that are burdened for those who don't know you. I pray that you would give us a desire to reach those with your love, God, that we would bring people back into a, good, into a right relationship with you. And I pray that our lives would reflect that which we know is true, that we are citizens of heaven, saved by grace and, and saved by you alone. And I pray these things in your son's name. Amen.